following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. read 1 Samuel 21 and into the first two verses of chapter 22. Please hear the word of our God and his record of revelation. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. The priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down, In the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Then David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land who they sang about in their dances, saying, Saul has struck down his thousands and David's his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run on his beard And Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him, and everyone who was in distress and everyone in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. 
and he became captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. This is God's word. Every driver of a car has this situation once in a while, maybe even with some regularity. I drive through a nearby neighborhood, many of you know as Mondayman Farms, pass through there, going and coming from my home to church every day, sometimes a couple times a day, and I have decided that Mondavin Farms should better be called Squirrel City. If you live there, maybe you know why, because I can never seem to drive through that road and without encountering one or more squirrels moving about. And you know that situation you have with a squirrel, how they're at the edge of the road or maybe in the middle of the road, and you approach, they hear your car, and they something in the brain says, get out of the way, so they go this way, then they go this way, and this way, and this way, and this way. And it seems like the last move always has them headed for my front wheel, and I think, surely this is the death blow. And I look in my rearview mirror and say, no, I missed them. How in the world did I miss him? I wasn't trying to hit him. That's never been my aim. But it amazes me to see that kind of behavior, that they're back and forth, back and forth, trying to decide how to escape. Well, the reason I mention something as trivial as that is because I know people like that. People who are so skitterish in their behavior, particularly when under some kind of a fear or threat, that they dodge this way and that way and and come up with all kinds of schemes and lies and covers and They're trying to get out of a situation, but almost diving into worse danger by the things that they do. As we read of odd incidents here in the life of David in 1 Samuel 21, you might very readily wonder, is this actually the same man who showed such bold courage before Goliath? It seems like he is doing really weird things in this chapter in several different ways. He's certainly afraid. He had to flee very suddenly from Saul, so much so that he he didn't have time to pack up a lot of supplies and a camping gear and stuff a knapsack with food and take his best weapons and a couple of armed men. It looks like he just basically ran away with the shirt on his back. And in the course of things here, he's living out what he told to Jonathan in chapter 20, verse 3, when he said, I am only one step away from death by your father's hand. Escape from Saul, who was a dangerous enemy, is his all-consuming motivation. And David was alone in this chapter until the very end of the text that I read. A man of God here doesn't have his home, he doesn't have his wife, he doesn't have his best friend, doesn't even have a weapon. No army was with him. And so we have a chance to find out what does a man of God do in solitary confinement when under the pressure of great fear. Sadly, for the most part, he does not act according to his faith. And if you think David is, is such a great man of God that he always dwelt on a high spiritual plane, you certainly have to make an exemption for 1 Samuel 21. He's very human and very prone to error and mistake and fear in this chapter. He's portrayed warts and all as most other biblical characters are here. He's just like that squirrel trying to dodge the wheel of the approaching car and not sure which way to turn. Well, I say I believe there are many people and any one of us that might be in a time like that in our own lives 
when we're not quite sure how to get out of a situation, how to be free of something we're afraid that's going to happen, losing the job if we don't do a certain thing, uh, losing a relationship with an important person in your family. And you're driven by the fear of what may happen to maybe concoct some, some very strange solutions and even panic, as it seems David did here. God's favor for him was in a kind of eclipse as far as visible representation went. And yet, we're going to see that the Most High was working on behalf of David, not really with his cooperation, but in spite of it in this particular time in his life. He thought desperate measures were the only way to go, and the Lord showed him otherwise by the end of this chapter, I think. In the first place, I want you to notice in 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 9, how David lied about his situation in multiple ways, and yet God still faithfully met his needs. Maybe we learn about a person when we see the place he turns to when he's in trouble. Where does he go instinctively? Is there a homing instinct in a person's life that says, go here when in trouble? I would suggest there was that homing instinct in David's life because the place he went was a good place. He went to the house of the Lord. Now, that was not Jerusalem and a temple because if you have the most rudimentary Bible history in mind, you'll remember David's son, Solomon, built the first temple. There was no temple now, and Jerusalem wasn't even a big center until later on in David's kingdom. The center of worship was a really obscure place, a little village called Nob, about as obscure as the name sounds. You know, Nob sounds like some place beyond the remotest farm in Lancaster County you can think about. I I know many jokes have been made, and I hope nobody's going to take this one personally, but people have joked with me about the little crossroads of Shenick. Some of you know where Shenick is. Some of you go, what? Never heard of it. And they say, well, if you can find Shenick, you can't get back once you're there. It's such an obscure place. I actually have been to to Shenick and got back again. But Nob was a a little village just north of present-day Jerusalem where the the tabernacle was housed and the priests functioned in the carrying out of the ceremonial law, bringing of sacrifices and things, and putting things on the altar, which included, according to Old Testament requirements, fresh-baked bread, 12 loaves of bread representing the tribes of Israel that sat on the altar, showbread it was called, or bread of the presence that was put there for a week at a time. And at the end of the week, it was replaced, of course, with fresh bread, and and the priest got the wonderful privilege of being able to eat seven-day-old bread. Not such a great privilege, actually, but sometimes that's what ministers get to do. So uh, here was this bread. We don't know how long it had been there when David came and made this approach. I, I would remind you that David was the one who wrote Psalm 84, And maybe some of this thinking was in his mind, whether that psalm came after or before, I'm not sure, but it certainly expressed his regard for and his value put upon the place of God's worship. Psalm 84 says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord God Almighty. Blessed are those who dwell in your house and are ever praising you. My soul yearns for the courts of the Lord. Better is one day in your court than a thousand elsewhere. If a man writes something like that, it's not surprising 
that his first instinct in a time of trouble would be, I'm going to the house of the Lord. I'm going to consult perhaps with the priest and seek wisdom and perhaps pray. Well, we don't know exactly what happened when he approached Ahimelech, but it says here that Ahimelech trembled when he saw David coming. There was, this was odd. It didn't add up right because he knew David as a commander of the king's forces. And here he was all alone, not wearing a weapon at all. And Ahimelech was like, David, well, what are you doing here? Well, what is this? Now, why was it that David immediately could not tell Ahimelech, by the way, he's the great-grandson of the former priest Eli, why couldn't he tell the priest honestly what was going on? Most people think the answer here is that he didn't want to implicate the priest into helping him and therefore being thought to be Saul's enemy. And indeed, if we, I'm not going to get ahead of the story, but there's a hint in the verse 7 of this man Doeg, the Edomite, who was there, who later ends up being a spy and tells Saul what happened. And that indeed gets Ahimelech in really big trouble, and we'll get to that later on. But maybe that's what David feared, that if Ahimelech helps me, he'll get the wrath of Saul for helping me. So I better make up a story. Oh, Ahimelech, I'm, I'm on a secret mission from the king, and I'm going to meet my men down the road here. They're, they're rendezvousing with me soon, and I don't have anything for them. I need to feed them. Do you have any bread? Well, you see what Ahimelech did. Later on in the New Testament, Jesus mentions this incident in interpreting the propriety of the Sabbath and the whole idea that the principle or the the uh, moral value of God's law means more than perhaps sometimes the letter of God's law when he says that Ahimelech did a good thing in giving this consecrated bread to David at the time that he did it. He bent the rules to observe mercy rather than say, well, no, I couldn't touch. That's the only bread I've got, and I couldn't touch it. And so Ahimelech does help David here. David also got a weapon. What an irony of the weapon he got. You know, with no great organized capital yet for the nation or the kingdom, it almost seems like whatever the equivalent was of the Smithsonian Institution was also at Nob, where the worship center was. And in this little mini museum, they had what? The Sword of Goliath, a great trophy, certainly one of the biggest national trophies you could imagine because it represented the tremendous victory over their enemies. And David says, got any weapons? Oh, do I have a weapon for you? And of course, who should wield that weapon but David who had actually captured it in the first place and killed Goliath. We don't know the exact size of that sword, but you can imagine we talked weeks ago about Goliath's nine-foot stature. If you're nine feet tall, how big is your sword? I'm guessing five feet. If any of us were to put a, a, a five-foot sword in a scabbard at our waist, the point would clank on the ground. David would almost look ridiculous wearing this sword if he wore it around his waist or something. I don't know how he would carry it, but he got a weapon that was more than just a normal weapon, a fearsome weapon, and a full belly in the bargain as he goes away. But the point is, he lied to do it. He lied multiple ways here, and to the priest of God, no less. Coming to the worship center, which should have been a place of honesty and, and prayer and confession, 
Oh, priest, I need your help. I need your guidance. I need the help of the Lord. He came with these manufactured stories to try to cover up and deceive and achieve his results by uh, something much less than the truth. Maybe this causes us to act what we're ask ourselves what we're doing when we worship, when we come to a place like this on Sunday. and Oh, I'm going to the house of the Lord. All right. Are you going to the house of the Lord for honest worship, for honest confession of your need and your state of mind and, and your reliance on what God can do? Or are you maybe going to fulfill a role or impress somebody that you showed up or even to impress God that you showed up. It makes us ask ourselves what kind of masquerade might be going on when we go to the place of worship. But secondly, I want to put as a centerpiece this second episode in this chapter because it's a complete change that happens at verse 10, 1 Samuel 21.10. It happens so suddenly that you're reading along and if you understand what happens, you ought to almost drop your Bible. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, maybe you say, oh, well, I don't, what does that mean? I don't know anything about Gath. What's Gath? Well, do you remember this fellow Goliath who David killed? Where was he from? Goliath of Gath. This is one of the capitals of the Philistines the sworn enemies of Israel, the very people David had been riding out with bands of warriors and fighting against and killing them by the dozens and the hundreds. David, who instigated in the killing of Goliath that day a great rout that sent the people of Gath that were with Goliath fleeing, and many of them died. He's going to their city. And I I stop and I look at this, I go, what? Are you kidding? Why did he do that? I'm trying to grope for something that would make you understand how absurd this is. And I I know the example I'm going to give is absurd, but maybe it'll make the point. Here we've got President George W. Bush who who had, you know, led all the different struggles we had against various places in the Middle East and Iraq and Afghanistan. Let's imagine that George W. in his retirement has some time on his hand and he consults the CIA and says, hey, tell me, where's the Al-Qaeda headquarters now or one of their headquarters in, in Afghanistan? I think I need to pay a visit. And, and so George W. Bush gets in his airplane and goes to Afghanistan and strolls up to the headquarters hidden house of Al-Qaeda leaders and knocks on the door and says, hey, fellas, I'm the former president of the United States. I just thought I'd stop in and pay you a, a little call. Do you have any tea on hand or, or cookies that we could sit down and have some fellowship? Of course that's ridiculous. But how much more ridiculous is David going to the king of the very enemy city that he had fought against all this time? You say, what in the world is he thinking of? Did he think that they wouldn't recognize him? They did recognize him, of course. And we would believe that David knew he would be recognized, but somehow in the process of being recognized, it says here, the the servants of Achish reported, is this not David? And started to talk about him. His nerve left him. 
And he thought, oh boy, wait a minute, this isn't going to work the way I thought. What we believe he thought he could do is go there and offer himself, a man with a price on his head from Saul, as a mercenary and say, hey, do you know what? King Saul hates me. I will fight for you. Let me go out at the head of the Philistine forces and Saul will see me and and the forces of Israel will fear because I am with you. That's probably what he was trying to do here. But he began to feel then that even that wasn't going to work and that he might be killed. And so look at what he did. He, He certainly was an inventive man. He started to act as if he was insane. He let himself drool on his beard. He must have gotten down on all fours and maybe he barked like a dog and made marks and danced around and made nonsense noises. He pretended he was suddenly insane. You wonder how that helped him. Why wouldn't they kill him anyway? Well, one thing we do know that in the ancient world, those who were thought to have what we would call mental disorders or insanity to to act in bizarre ways were usually respected and more or less left alone. It was whatever gods they worshiped, they would say, oh, our gods would be angry if we hurt this person because he's not in his right mind. If you think the Bible doesn't have humor, I love the humor of King Achish. Did you see it as I read? As he responds to his servants and sees how David is acting, and he says, do I lack madmen that I need this fellow? That's a commentary on them and on the advisors and the people who are around him. I've got plenty of insane people around me. I don't need another one. And he says, send him away. And David was let go. And you might think, well, what a lucky turn of events. Pure luck saved him. Well, there's no pure luck saving anybody in the Word of God. David was saved by the providential protection of his God. No question about it. In a place where he should have been killed. But his desperate schemes, you see, a desperate scheme with Ahimelech by lying, a desperate scheme with Achish by pretending to be insane, His schemes came to nothing, but God still acted on his behalf and preserved him and delivered him. And you know, again, there are real carryovers because we can see ways in which we as children of God who should trust him and wait for him and pray and expect him to guide and protect end up inventing schemes where we would depend on the people of this world and say, Maybe this powerful friend over here can can do some political thing for me or can do something to my financial advantage or can somehow get me out of this mess that I'm in. And when we seek warmth at the campfires of the people of this world, we're bound to remain cold because there's no warmth there for the people of God. If someone like Achish is your best idea of a refuge then that, I tell you, is a kind of madness in and of itself. Now, the third scenario here is very brief in the beginning of 1 Samuel 22, just a couple of verses. David left Gath unharmed. He retreated into the wilderness to a place called the Cave of Adullam. And there, again, God mercifully worked for him when he wasn't doing it or making it happen. David fled to the wilderness alone, But God sent strong companions to his side. 
Now, this was a real change. You might remember that David and his brothers were not always on the best of terms. When, when David showed up earlier, before the Goliath incident, his older brother read him the riot act. You know, who do you think you are showing up here telling us not to be afraid of Goliath? And his older brother really dressed him down. But it tells us now that his brothers and his family came and rallied to him and found him and heard he was in the wilderness and went there. And somehow, we have no word that David himself recruited this or, or caused this to happen, but it became like the story of Robin Hood in Sher- Sherwood Forest, you know, the great legend of Robin Hood and all the, all the people in debt oppressed by the king and everybody else who was unsatisfied came out to the outlaw leader. That's what happened with David. It seems that God sponsored this movement until 400 fighting men were with him. He was no longer alone. And in fact, most of those men stayed with him until he became the king and beyond. Now, there is some outside testimony that that helps us kind of draw a conclusion and, and see what's going on here because not one but two biblical psalms were written, we believe, right after these incidences. We can date the Psalms in certain ways, and it is believed that both Psalm 34 and Psalm 56 come out of David's life as a composer of songs right around this time or just after this time. The man anointed to be God's chosen king was tested, and he didn't react very well. He darted back and forth like the squirrel trying to escape the wheel of the car and lacked in faith the whole way, and yet he came to see and understand the grace and the providence of God was working on his behalf. And he didn't come away from these incidences saying, oh, what a lucky break that I got out of that one in one piece. Instead, he came away saying in so many words, my God is for me. Here's what he wrote in Psalm 34, beginning at verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him, he said, are radiant. Their faces are not covered with shame. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. And so he urged others in his psalm, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Gath. No, in him. He learned a lesson. He even seems to perhaps allude to the lies that he told in Psalm 34, 13, when he says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Was he being a little autobiographical there and saying, Lies won't get you anywhere. David learned a new fear, not just the fear of Saul, but a 180-degree different fear of the Lord, a respect of the Lord who is working for us when we are not even mindful, perhaps, of him. We are under his protective canopy, which works often in spite of ourselves. Psalm 56 has some of the same thoughts there as David wrote there, Psalm 56, 3 and 4, when I am afraid, I will trust in you, O God, in God whose word I praise. Him will I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Now, here's a guy who just before this, his whole life was controlled by what a mortal man could do to him, King Saul. 
And he was acting in stupid ways because of King Saul in fear of him. Now he says, I won't be afraid. What can a mortal man do, even a king? He could kill me, maybe. He could certainly dishonor me. He could drive me into exile. He could take my reputation. But none of those things are permanent things that can harm me in any lasting way. Maybe I'm speaking to somebody who's in a dilemma of life of some type, of course, very different than David's. You don't have a king throwing spears at you. Maybe you have an employer doing the equivalent. Maybe you have just some hard place that you cannot figure out, how do I deal with this? How do I get past this or, or get through this? And, and you've got schemes and you've told stories and you've sort of invented covers and you're staying one step ahead maybe of the truth with other people. David's story tells us fear God, reverence him, trust his word. What can a mortal man do to you that is permanent as far as harm goes, even if you lose your life. You won't lose your soul. You won't lose your God. And have you remembered what he has done for you already in Christ and what he is doing for you day in, day out, applying the mercies of the righteousness of Christ to your life all the time, whether you're asking for it or not? It takes but a moment a writer said, for God to win a convert. But it takes a lifetime for him to sculpt a saint. You see, David was already a convert to the Lord God, but he was pretty impatient with the sculpting of sainthood in him. And I think we are too. We feel like there are times when we're dry, when things aren't happening, when God isn't doing anything, and Maybe he really just has forgotten about us. But dwelling in his word, actively trusting him, forsaking the false and foolish schemes and lies of this world and the worldly people who we might think would protect us when they have no interest in doing so, is our calling. Our calling is expressed by David in that 34th Psalm. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who take their refuge in Him alone. Our Father, I pray that you might give us patience to wait for you, to look to you, to listen for your word, your direction through prayer. Take away our squirrelish behavior, darting here and there, doing things that might appear to be absolutely foolish to an objective observer. Teach us to make you our refuge. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.